I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. We're suffering from an epidemic of burnout, and women are especially affected. According to recent statistics, 45% of women suffer from burnout. And this, of course, has many different causes, and they can vary from person to person, but they include uh, sleep deprivation, poor nutrition, nutrient deficiency, chronic stress, uh, social disconnection, blood sugar irregularities and metabolic dysfunction, not enough exercise, too much exercise or the wrong type of exercise or overtraining, inappropriate use of biohacking approaches like fasting or cold plunges, uh, sauna, etc. Of course, that, that's not a major cause on a population level, but for people who listen to these types of podcasts and who show up in functional medicine practices, it can be. There's really a whole long list of issues that contribute to burnout and exhaustion uh, that so many people are experiencing. And I was really excited to welcome Dr. Molly Malouf as a guest on the show to discuss this. She has a recent book out called The Spark Factor, where she explores this phenomenon and offers a number of really helpful and insightful strategies on how to recharge your batteries and get fitter, stronger, and build resilience over the course of your lifetime. So Dr. Malouf is a physician that provides personalized medicine to entrepreneurs, investors, and technology executives. She's taught a pioneering course on extending health span in the wellness department of the medical school at Stanford University. And since 2012, she's worked as an advisor, consultant to more than 50 companies in the digital health, consumer health, and biotech space. Dr. Malouf is really on the frontier of personalized medicine, digital health, biofeedback, psychedelic medicine, and evidence-based wellness products and services. She's got her hands in a lot of different areas, super knowledgeable on many different topics, and I really enjoyed this conversation because it, it spanned a range of things that I've been interested in for many years, everything from how social isolation is a bigger risk factor for disease and early death than smoking cigarettes and body mass index, which is always surprising when people hear that, how to use continuous glucose monitors and other technology to discover insights about what's affecting not only your blood sugar, but your cortisol levels and sleep, who should and shouldn't fast, You know when fasting can be supportive and when it can be problematic how to optimize for sleep and recovery instead of just thinking about, you know, exercise and training and fitness, 
uh, blood sugar, metabolic flexibility. It, it was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let's dive in. Dr. Molly Malouf, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about burnout. It is sure. an epidemic. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just even anecdotally, I think... Yeah. You know, we can all reflect on how, how are you? I'm so busy right now. I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. I mean, this is just yeah. like regular conversation. But then there, of course, are our statistics to back it up. 45% of women claim, you know, claiming to suffer from burnout. So what, what's going on here? 65% of doctors. Yeah. I've talked know. a lot about clinician burnout on yeah. this show. In the it's past, a huge but... issue. I mean, I think first it's really important for people to really understand where they're at in the stress response. Um, there's a lot of people who are really in the alarm phase and you're just like super tired and but also wired all the time and you're waking up really early in the morning and you're just like these are actually have energy but they just feel like they're on edge at all times yeah now burnout is after that that high cortisol states lasted for so long and you basically are flatlined you know like your cortisol is turned it's your body's like i need to shut down i need to heal and it's really an adaptive response to chronic stress if you really think about it that way, you should, it's, it's important to understand that like the body isn't really supposed to experience this level of chronic stress and it's going to do its very best to adapt to that situation. So what does it do? If it can't keep up with you, it literally turns down your cortisol so that you just have to rest. Like it's just imperative. Now, a lot of people don't have the, you know, luxury of just taking time off. So that you have to do certain things to support the body. And in my personal practice, one of my sort of secret weapons of burnout is first of all, cortisol testing. I like to see, you know, where in the cycle are they really low and then blood sugar monitoring. So if you wear a blood sugar monitor along with measuring your cortisol and also your HRV, you can see how this is affecting your, your ability to maintain your blood sugar, which is actually leading to a lot of the symptomatology of burnout is blood sugar dysregulation. So these people will wake up in the middle of the night and, um, Oftentimes they get like specifically very early in the morning as well, middle of the night, they can wake up really, really um, depressed and headachey. And if you put a blood sugar monitor on these people, they actually have really low blood sugar and they can't maintain their blood sugar because their cortisol is so low and your job, like cortisol is a glucocorticoid. So it's designed to maintain blood sugar. It's actually one of the many functions of cortisol. And in these individuals, I, I do start either Dr. Wilson's adrenal rebuilder if it's early on in the process, or if it's really established burnout, then I'll use a little bit of hydrocortisone, um, you know, that's been prescribed by a compounding pharmacy, five milligrams, maybe max 15 milligrams, and really use that to sort of restart that cortisol curve. It's not necessarily common practice. I learned this from a doctor who taught me hormones, but with, for people who are really burned out and they can't maintain that blood sugar and they're waking up in the morning and they're feeling super headachey and like, they just, they, they just feel ex like so exhausted. They can barely get out of bed. Sometimes just supporting their systems can really help, but you also have to look at testosterone. You have to look at estrogen, progesterone, because when a person's um, under chronic threat, their bodies are directing resources to survival, not to reproduction. So you often see concurrent hypogonadism or um, specifically women, who, women, which this book is really written for this book. I've written the spark factor. You see a lot of progesterone deficiency in women who are under significant stress. And, and also those are, hitting their late thirties, early forties, they're at the peak of their career. And so they're, they're, you know, it's important to just recognize that hormonal support is, it can be a, one of those things that can bridge you through a really tough patch. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about blood sugar and cortisol a bit. I've, yeah. I've talked about this on my show a bunch, but I think it's really important for people to understand the relationships and there's, there's yeah. a two way street here. You mentioned, you know, in the burnout stage, when cortisol is low, people will experience hypoglycemia maybe during the night. And actually, the probably the main role of cortisol from an evolutionary perspective was to maintain blood sugar during periods of food scarcity. Yeah. Because, you know, now that in the developed world, that's not really an issue for most no. people, but it was for most of our evolutionary history, that starvation and, and periods of food scarcity were far more common than periods of food abundance. And so... You've got that side of things. And then on the other side of things, and people often will learn this when they wear levels or, or do, you know, glucometer testing 
is if people are still in the phase where they're getting cortisol spikes in the morning, yeah. the people are like, wait, why is my fasting glucose so high? I'm on yes. a low carb diet. I'm, I'm keto I'm yes. whatever, but I have these really crazy high spikes of, of cortisol of, of glucose in the morning. Yeah. What's going on here? Very often that can be the cortisol, the cortisol awakening response, right? Yeah. Where they get the surge of cortisol in the morning. So, I mean, that happened to me this year, literally, because I was under so much stress from running a company, launching a book, teaching at Stanford, fundraising, moving all in one year. So it's like sometimes stress that sometimes like sometimes success is actually really stressful, which you don't realize until it happens to you. And you're like, oh yeah, I know the Holmes Raw rating score. I know that this is a part of like life, like, but I, I had never really experienced it like this. And so I, um, I was wearing my blood sugar monitor and I was like, oh, I need to cut out coffee. Cause I'm just drinking a cup of coffee in the morning and it is spiking my blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. And people don't realize that coffee is one of those great tools for alertness. But if you're under a high stress state and you're spiking your cortisol, you're actually just raising it higher. So I, I shifted over, I detoxed off coffee. I designed a coffee detox for mud water. So I just did what I designed and I just like weaned off coffee, started mud water, started um, drinking more tea, less caffeine. And it really was one of the main things that help moderate my, my cortisol levels pretty significantly. Yeah. This is a good segue to let, let, let's chat a little bit about hormetic response and and because a lot of your work, you know, in the book there is, 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 is related to this. There, there are certain, there are many interventions that can be beneficial in certain circumstances, but harmful in others. And so we're, we're talking about one of them, coffee, you know, right. it, it, Oh yeah. Coffee's a healthy tool. Yeah, like if you sleep well, you're rested, you're in a good yeah. spot, you're not in a burnout stage, no problem with coffee, yeah. you know? Um, and then exercise and yeah. intermittent fa- uh, fasting or intermittent fasting. fasting. These are all things that when used properly can be beneficial, but when someone is in a state of exhaustion, yeah, they can push that they're no longer hormetic, meaning they they no right. longer lead to a positive adaptation. They just push you deeper into the hole. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you nailed it with all these things, right? And this is one of the main messages I'm trying to communicate to women in particular is like, and all, and men too, this book can be read by women or men, but you know, I, I spent all this time working in Silicon Valley, working with these male biohackers as clients. And then when I would work with women and they were coming in trying to biohack, they were stopping their periods because they were doing hit training, weightlifting, cold plunge, and they were combining all these things and they weren't eating enough. And, um, you know, calorie restriction is technically a hormetic stressor, but chronic calorie restriction combined with excess exercise combined with, you know, um, not enough recovery, and you're going to turn down your fertility and you're going to turn off your hormones. And these are women who are very low body fat, and some of them were even in bodybuilders. And so I just learned firsthand that like a lot of biohacking doesn't necessarily work the same for women or men, but I think for everybody, if you are really high cortisol and you're feeling stressed out or you're really low cortisol and you're feeling burned out, you do have to be more careful with biohacking because you're not going to get the same benefits from these interventions. Cold plunge is a great example. I'm all for cold plunge. And I see these people going online and they're doing 10, 20 minute cold plunges. And I'm like, that is not, that is not helping you. <laughs> like maybe if you're Wim Hof and you're like genetically, you know, superior in this way to handle this, <laughs> but the vast majority of people do not have the capacity to handle that level of stress. And I've actually seen people develop real burnout after doing really long cold plunges. And it's just a great, and this is a man actually. So it's just important for people to recognize like, these are things that make you stronger if you're already at a baseline state of balance, right? And they need to be dosed appropriately because let's say you've got a stress cup and you're filling it with day-to-day stress and you've got all your biohacking tools that are kind of adding a little bit of stress, but it makes you stronger. What happens if you get hit with a major life stressor and you're still doing all this biohacking? Well, you can overflow the stress cup and that's when people start to break down. And that's kind of the big message to people is like, it's not that we, I want you to stop biohacking. It's not that I don't want you to fast. It's that when you're really stressed out, fasting is not really going to help you as much as actually eating regular meal times and actually being consistent, sending safety signals to your brain and really getting that recovery in. Like I realized myself that I was um, 
doing a lot of great exercise, but I wasn't getting enough recovery. And I have this whole living room of biohacking tools. And I had to remind myself, hey, you got to use these things. Like you can't just sit, they can't just sit in your room. You got to actually go do them. And recovery and biohacking recovery is just as important as biohacking strength and, and, you know, all of the, all of the sort of bigger challenges that biohacking can do to make you stronger. These are, in my opinion, um, cultural norms though, that we have to, that many people have to overcome. So one is that we have not been taught to listen to our bodies and to respect our own bio-individuality and everything that you're referring to requires that as a starting place. It requires me to be aware of what's happening in my life, to be aware of what's happening in my body. I wake up in the morning, maybe I typically intermittent fast, but I wake up feeling jittery and, you know, hypoglycemic and I've got a long stressful day ahead. I'm going to eat breakfast that morning you know, because yeah. I, I'm, I'm paying attention and I know that that's going to give me kind of a level of stability and grounding that if I just keep, you know, I'm a person who intermittent fast. So I'm every morning I'm going to skip breakfast yeah. and, and, and you have that sort of rigid approach. That's when things really, you know, or, or you could use any example, like today I, I have an appointment to go do a, a high intensity interval training workout at the gym, but I woke up feeling totally exhausted what choice do you make in that situation? Do you go and do it anyways because that's Tuesday and Tuesday is my hit day <laughs> or do right. you back off and, and listen to what's going on? So in my practice, I've always been trying to help people to like, A, just pay attention, first of all, which is the the starting point. And then B, like be willing to break the routine if that's what your body's telling you to do. Your body is the ultimate arbiter and that's way more Mm. important than sticking to any kind of, you know, fixed schedule. Well, I mean, we're all moving so fast right now and the world is changing so fast. And so first thing is most people need more self-compassion because literally we're living in a massive change in financial structures, changing political structures, changing climate there's war in the Ukraine, you know, there's threats of war in China. There's all sorts of things that are changing in the world. We just had a pandemic. We're we're entering a major flu season and COVID's still here. So like, let's get real. There's a lot of reasons why people are living in a state of threat and let alone the media and the way they communicate things. So we have to really start addressing firsthand, like, okay, what are my major sources of stress in my life? And how do I actually get a handle on these things? Because I had to just stop reading the news. I was just like, the news is making me sad and and anxious and I can't tolerate. I used to wake up in the morning and love the Wall Street Journal. And then there's a moment where I was just like, what is this doing for my mental health? You know, and I just replaced it with meditation. And it's like, obviously meditation is going to be more nourishing for your brain than reading the newspaper right now, given the way the world's going, you know? And then- It's remarkable how little you need to, you always find out what's going on. You You always find out. You don't, you don't need to read three newspapers and five sub stacks and, you know, (laughs) Twitter and everything else that you you will know the important things that you need to know even without that. Cause I I often recommend the same thing to my patients and there's, there's anxiety like, well, I want to be an informed citizen. Yeah, me too. And you will, you will know (laughs) one way or the other what's going on. Right. But I mean, the, the thing is, is like, we, did, we, we, we were told that stress is the thing that kills, but no one tells us how to handle it. Like, what do we do when we get stressed out? What are we supposed to do? And I think um, because people are moving so quickly in their lives, they don't often pause and reflect on like what's really going on and how they're living and how they can change how they're living. And like, I, I mean, I'm a big, some of my biggest favorite stress relieving tools are things like acupressure mats, bio mats. PEMF mats, sauna mats. Like I love, like I have all the mats in my living room and I invite friends over to hang out. And instead of like drinking, we lay in, we do recovery practices. And it's like, I want to popularize like cuddling and hanging out with your friends and like doing biohacks and like giving each other Theragun massages. Like that should be how we socialize more often than just thinking we have to go to every party and go to every event when like for a lot of people, that's just really stressful given the, given how many options we have. And then it's just also key to understand that like, if you do exercise, you have to recover too. So you need to bake in recovery into your day and not just your exercise, you know? And that's something I think a lot of people miss. 
specifically, you know, people who don't have a lot of time on their hands. So they, they're doing the exercise, but they're not actually doing the recovery properly, you know? And so yeah. I just think more people need to be thinking about, okay, like, when am I going to take my next vacation? I mean, a lot of people skip vacations. They just don't go. They just like work through them. And, and they, they, and we feel so proud of ourselves for like, I haven't taken a vacation in this long. I don't look at that as like a thing to be proud of. Like everybody needs time to recover and time to reflect. And if you don't occasionally retreat or what I call advance, you often miss the, miss an opportunity to take, to actually take a step back from your life and really look at how you're living and say, well, what do I want to do different next year? So like, I'm going to Puerto Rico to see some friends and to do some work, but I'm also thinking about, you know, what happens later on and like, what am I going to do during that week to plan for 2023? What am I going to do to sit down, really think through, like, what do I want this next year to look like? How do I want it to look different than this year? Yeah. I think there's a lot of cultural norms and attitudes there as well that, that make it difficult. You know, there's the sort of I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality. Oh, yeah. And, course we know that you'll die a lot sooner if you don't sleep so hey, oh my god i had a conversation <laughs> yesterday with a woman who a world-class scientist inventor she goes i only need to sleep three to four hours a night i'm like i'm sorry no yeah. she's like no i'm like yeah no like that is absolutely there's not no, true there's no one that we, yeah yeah i mean <laughs> no uh, Matt Walker will tell you, there is some variation individually but there's nobody that we know of that's three to four hours a night and and here's the interesting thing about that which i'm sure you know is the st studies have shown that after you know a few nights the first night or two of impaired sleep you notice that your function is impacted the next day but after a few nights of sleep deprivation this sort of delusion comes over oh, people yeah. where they're no longer aware that yeah. their function is impacted by their sleep deprivation. So you get that phenomenon where people are like, I sleep three to four hours a night and I'm fine. But if you did some kind of objective test of their motor function or any other way of measuring the impact of sleep deprivation, they would yeah. perform poorly for sure. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. And that's the thing, like the lymphatic system turns on, opens up and starts removing from your brain overnight. That's a really important time for your body to actually repair itself and clean out the garbage. You should be fasting overnight. That's a really important time for you to activate ketosis. If you do like a, a reasonable, you know, 14 hour fast, you're going to have a little bit of ketones produced and that's neuroprotective. And on top of that, we naturally live in accordance to sleep, 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 wake cycles, light, dark cycles are part of the design of existence. It's not like you can just ignore that and pretend like that doesn't matter. I mean, Huberman talks constantly about how light really changes his entire day, but it's just as important at night to have very dark, dark, having a really dark room because even just a little bit of light pollution can really affect your sleep quality. So these are very simple things that people can do, but prioritizing sleep is really key for optimal health because it's when we recharge our batteries. It's when we actually do a lot of, there's a lot of, um, of gene trans transcription during the night. There's actually potentially even more at night than during the day, they say. So it's interesting to think about the night as a very product productive time and not this like thing that we have to do, but this, cause I used to think that when I was younger, I was like, oh, I wish I didn't have to sleep. I wish I could just like keep, keep working all night long. And then when I really started hacking, the first thing I biohacked was my sleep. And it was like game changing for my mental health or for my focus for my attention, for my mood. Um, but yet it's still overlooked by so many people. Absolutely. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Kresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Kresser. 
Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now, they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. Let's talk a little bit about sleep because, and, and, and then how stress and stress management relates to sleep because yeah. a common pattern I see is you know, people running around like chickens with their heads cut off all day long and then getting to the point where they finally do decide to go to sleep and expecting to just be able to like get in bed and sleep deeply throughout the night. But of course that doesn't work at all. If you, yeah. if you're like triggering cortisol and adrenaline all throughout the day and, and, and you're just on like that hyper alert mode, then when you, when it comes time to sleep, your sleep is going to be really disrupted. And so I, I often hear from patients, I'd love to try to get to bed earlier. I'd love, but I can't cause I'm so wired at night. You know, I don't, I don't feel tired to fall asleep or when I do fall asleep, I wake up frequently throughout the night or I'm restless or whatever. So I know in your book, you talk a lot about the importance of stress management and um, lots of, you know, different ways to monitor stress and then, you know, how to approach that. So let's dive into that a bit. I mean, there's obviously the, 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 there's like a lot of these obvious things that we need to do, which is like, you know, we all know that there's major life stressors and like, that's, part of being human. But what a lot of people don't realize about stress is that there's a lot of like, there's, there's this theory called the generalized unsafety theory of stress guts theory. And when I learned about this theory, it made a lot of sense to me because basically there's a lot of hidden stressors in our lives in between these big life stressors. There can be a lot of minor stressors in our environment and also with, within our, our social networks and our bodies that can contribute to our cumulative allostatic load, which our allostatic load is basically the total amount of stress that you have in your life at one moment, right? And like over time, you can develop allostatic overload. And that's when you start really seeing the negative effects of stress on the body where you get mental health disturbances, you get, um, you know, you get impaired immunity and you get generally feeling exhausted. So, the one thing you really need to know about the nervous system is that when you're in a safe environment surrounded by people who make you feel safe, your brain turns off the unsafety signaling. But if you're isolated and you're alone and you don't have a strong social network, you actually are by nature turning on the stress signal to protect you because being alone in primitive times would have been would have signaled to the brain that it was unsafe. And so we actually developed loneliness as a primitive pain signal to bring you closer to your tribe. That's what loneliness's purpose was for, as an, from an evolutionary biology standpoint. And so we, we talk about this loneliness epidemic, but really it's an epidemic of disconnection. And it's an epidemic of people not having a strong tribe like they used to. And more and more people describe having no few to no friends. More and more people describe being isolated And that is extraordinarily detrimental to health. And something that I really want to be, really want to promote around is like this importance of connection as a path to greater health, because it turns out that the greatest factor we know in long-term health and happiness is close personal relationships. And yet I wasn't taught that in medical school at all. In fact, it was like kind of glossed over. So that's one facet of unsafety is like just a disconnected social network. Another one is... Um, very simply, interestingly, low cardiorespiratory fitness. So VO2 max is one of the best markers of longevity. And yet most people you talk to do not get the recommended amount of exercise per day. And as a result, they have low cardiorespiratory fitness. And so if they were in a situation where, and by the way, aside from the Midwest, every single aspect of the country has experienced a natural disaster in the, in the last few years. And if you're in a natural disaster, you need to be able to get out of danger. 
And yet if you have low cardiorespiratory fitness, you can't run away easily. So this is why low cardio, this is one of the reasons why low cardiorespiratory fitness contributes to generalized unsafety, but it also just contributes to like lower, if you have low oxygen carrying capacity, you just don't have high functioning mitochondrial health, right? And that's just, that's just kind of like, it's a kind of like a marker of how well your batteries are working. Um, is how easily your body can assimilate oxygen and, and, and burn fuel. Now, there's also, um, interestingly, I didn't really encounter this until I've been in the Bay Area, but the, the decibel level of your environment actually affects your, your, cell, your signaling of safety or unsafety and your general le level of stress. So having lived in a big city before and now living in Austin, I live in a really quiet neighborhood, but I used to live in a very loud part of San Francisco. And it's amazing what over the, over the pandemic, I started living in different locations and I discovered that the decibel level of my environment really did affect my overall mental health and mental well-being. So I recommend everybody download a decibel meter and just kind of like look up their decibel level to find out exactly how loud it is where they live, because it can make a big difference in how you feel day to day. Same thing goes with visibility. So if you have like a very, if like, let's say there's a forest fire and you can't see very far, well, low visibility is also sensed as generalized unsafety. So these are all really interesting ways to think through, like what are some aspects of stress that we may not be looking at, but that actually could contribute to our overall health and well-being day to day. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's, you know, it's just looking through the ancestral evolutionary lens, you know, what what is our natural environment as a species? And then looking at our current environment and seeing where those areas of mismatch are, um, you know, it would have been highly unusual for us uh, in, for most of our evolutionary history to live in a really loud, you know, live where there's a lot of really loud noises that are especially unnatural loud noises. And same thing with to have our visual field obstructed or to be in a situation where, like you pointed out earlier, we're under constant chronic stress. You know, acute stress was was always a part of our life, and and some you know chronic stress to some to some degree. But we weren't sitting around worrying about our four hundred one k plans and you know like uh, all of the kind of new types of modern stress that we have now. And our bodies are just not wired for that. So, right. You know, acknowledging the fact that that's this is not going away like most people can't just snap their fingers and get rid of all of this stress right it's really to me about stress management you know reducing the stress that 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 you can't avoid for example if there's someone in your life who's just constant battery and energy drain and they're not oh like yeah a, they're not a, a family member or someone that you can't avoid yeah that's a, that's a good example of where you could actually Oh, I make, had to do make that a choice and reduce stress. Right. Yeah. I, there's, there's people that just, you do need to block, you know, there's people that are energy vampires that will drain your energy and they really are toxic to your health. And so you've got to pay attention to that, but also concurrently, like I just had lunch earlier today with some really wonderful women who I just met new friends and I left feeling so filled up so energized, so connected, so safe. And, and like, these are very new friends and we went very vulnerable at our first real, I mean, I'd only met them each once before and we got really vulnerable with each other. We actually shared with each other our biggest challenges in the last year. And these were real, real challenges by people like real conflicts at work, real conflicts with partners, real conflicts with, you know, ex exes and things and like just real things that were actually affecting us. And it felt so good to hear from these really successful women that like, I'm not alone. And like, they, there are also really successful women that also have problems similar to mine. And I didn't feel alone in my problems. You know, I felt very much like I can handle this. You know, I've got people who have my back and um, to me, building social connection is this massively underappreciated frontier of health that can really transform your life. And so like, what does that mean? That means like a lot of people just struggle with social skills. A lot of people don't know how to make friends and don't know how to like actually reach out to people and say, Hey, really like to have lunch with you. Let's go do this. Um, some people are really socially awkward or socially anxious. Some people just feel really uncomfortable with social interaction. 
especially after three years of a major pandemic. But it's important for us to sort of get over those hurdles and to like really reach out to people and also go to social events and meet people and make new friends and nurture those relationships and and deepen those relationships and expand those relationships because we're designed to connect because when you connect to people, you share information and resources and that enhances your survival. That enhances your chances of accumulating more resources, accumulating more friends, accumulating more connection, feeling a sense of love and safety through oxytocin, which is nature's medicine and implicated in the placebo response, implicated in a variety of other, other things like the, you know, the expectation of feeling good is actually what causes a placebo to work. But oxytocin is also naturally a, um, it's mitoprotective, it protects the mitochondria. It's an antioxidant, it's anti-inflammatory. It's um, cardioprotective, it improves heart health. And yet we, we're not taught about how to boost oxytocin in medical school. Like it's just not part of your education. And it's so important that we do spend time with people we love and trust. And we build those relationships through, through having meals with others, through going to social events, through you know organizing things for people around us, through sharing, you know, sharing and, and acts of service. It's not just for your partner, it's for others, you know? Doing things to help others is very nourishing to your own nervous system as well. So it's just stuff that I had to learn. I'm actually publishing a paper with some students at Harvard on the relationship between metabolic health and mental health and this common pathway of connection versus social isolation. And it's just like so obvious after the pandemic that we all miss this major, this major problem, which is like if you isolate animals in, in labs, they develop depression, they develop PTSD, they develop anxiety. And it's like, humans are no different, you know? Absolutely. I mean, we, that, that you referred before to um, some of the research on social isolation as being the, you know, the, the major factor for longevity. You know, one of my favorite studies is uh, the one that found that lack of social connections is a bigger risk factor for early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, <laughs> which yeah. just blew my mind when I read it and blows everyone's mind, I think, when they hear about it. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have to think about this 200 years ago and and before that because we just lived in close-knit tribal groups around most places in the world. And even in the industrializing world at that point, most people had multi-generational homes. You know, there's grandma and grandpa were there and the parents and the kids. And there was just, and then the neighborhoods and communities were tighter. And and we didn't have these sort of isolated nuclear family living situations that we have today. And like you said, there's a growing number of people who don't even have one confidant, you know, one person that they can confide in and really yeah. connect with. And I mean, that's so unnatural. It's it's very unnatural and very harmful. It's so harmful. I mean, I mean, it's not just um, smoking. It's also sedentary, but it's actually social disconnection is a greater risk factor for um, disease than uh, and mortality than, than sedentary behavior and obesity. BMI. So it's yeah. like smoking, sedentary behavior, obesity. Where's the public health campaign for social disconnection? Yeah. Can we, like, can we talk about that? Like, the government tells us we need to exercise. We need to eat five a day. It doesn't tell us we need to connect with people. It tells us to isolate. How does that make sense? Like, how does that make any sense? You know, it's it's a it's a big problem, and it's you know, I, I've ta- we've we've had a lot of people on the show to talk about it from a number of different perspectives. I mean, certainly the the digital technologies that we have are amazing and connecting people who wouldn't otherwise be connected, and and there's a lot of pluses there, but of but it doesn't substitute for real in-person human authentic connection. It doesn't produce oxytocin no. in the way, you know, just as a single example, it doesn't produce oxytocin in that way. And, and we know about the physiological benefits of that. Totally. Shift gears and talk a little bit about, um, cause I know it's a big interest of yours, uh, metabolic health and, yes. uh, in particular, we can tie together some of the things we've already been talking about which are stress and social connection and emotional health and metabolic health. So imagine a woman, let's just use an example, a woman who is overweight, she's trying to lose weight, but she's burning the candle at both ends, super stressed out, not sleeping very well, socially isolated in an unhappy marriage, doesn't have a lot of friends. 
what can we predict is going to happen there with her weight loss efforts? Oh, she will not be losing weight. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And the thing is, is like, it's okay because it's an adaptive response and it may hurt at the moment to feel like, oh, gosh, I can't, everything I'm doing, I'm, do, it's, I'm trying so hard, but I can't lose that pound. Well, it's because your nervous system is literally under, under threat. And when your mitochondria gets sent those signals, because like, here's the thing that people need to realize um, is that mitochondria are not just power plants. They're not just taking in substrate, burning oxygen and building ATP, right? That's, they're not just um, power plants. They're also batteries and capacitors. So they make charge and electrochemical gradient, but they also deploy charge quickly. But where that charge goes is determined by the, the, the signals that the mitochondria get and the cell gets to determine where they need to direct the resources. So it's like, you know, if you're under threat, are you going to try to go reproduce? No, you're not going to like, you're not going to focus on fertility. You're not going to focus on let, letting go of calories. You're going to hold on to every single calorie you got because you don't know if you're, if, what if tomorrow's a famine? What if there's no food around tomorrow? Hold, you got, you got to hold on to those calories. I mean, a woman, thyroid, thyroid dysfunction is so common in the country. And obviously Hashimoto's is one, one cause, but there's also a lot of subclinical hypothyroidism. And it's, I think a lot of it is largely due to the amount of stress people are under. And it's like a body under this much stress is like, I'm going to turn down that thermostat, save some energy. You know, why, why would I want to burn all this energy? I need to see, I need to keep this energy around. And so what I've learned in like my career is that we need to stop looking at so many things as problems and diseases and actually start looking at more things as adaptations. Because if you look at the body as like always trying to protect you and keep you alive and keep you safe, then a lot of what we consider to be negative effects of stress are actually adaptive responses to stress. And they suck. I'm not saying it's fun to not lose weight, but I am saying that it's like, if you understand the cause, then the focus needs to be directed differently. So during the pandemic, I gained 10 pounds and I was so beating myself up that I just was like, man, I just can't lose this weight. What am I going to do? And then the moment it hit me, there's a moment that I just remembered it hit me. It was like, wait, you know, this, you know, you can't lose weight because the world's turned upside down. And like, once you get feeling safe and secure again, the weight's just going to come off. And once I got, I did get vaccinated because I wanted to start traveling because I wanted to see my friends. And I'd been isolated long enough. And I was like, I want to go see my friends. I'm good. I'm willing to get vaccinated to go see them. And that in, in three months, I lost like all the weight. And it was just like the moment I felt safe and connected is like the weight just started melting off. And it was like, oh, obviously this makes sense. You know, my diet didn't change. It was my stress levels that changed. It was my body's signals that were sent that changed. And the world was different, you know? We can go back to when we were talking about cortisol and how, you know, if you're, if, if someone's really stressed out, then they're going to be having uh, spikes of cortisol in the morning, which will spike glucose, which has a whole range of metabolic effects. And, can, and, and we also know that cortisol can cause weight loss resistance because, you know, when you have high cortisol for a long period of time, it, it blunts the, the receptors. You essentially get like a cortisol resistance. You don't get the yes. impact of that anymore. And, and so there's a whole cascade of things that we don't need to go into, but sure. very close relationship between what's going on in life and, and that, that body, you know, the, the body's essentially the decisions that the body is making about weight, weight regulation. And I, this is, a really interesting conversation for me because I've had lots of people in my practice over the years, both men and women with weight loss resistance, you know, who are yeah. doing all the right things, you know, eating a clean, healthy diet, exercising, et cetera, but the needle is not moving. And I think this is a really, this is kind of unexplored territory for a lot of people like, go, wait, I just having more social connection. I can act, that's going to move the needle in terms of weight loss. I do want to add another really important topic that is so under discussed in health and so unbelievably important. And that's the role of our trauma in our history and also attachment dysfunction with our childhood. So like adverse childhood experiences, unresolved trauma, PTSD, insecure attachment, a lot of these are 
facets of, you know, our, our, what we call, what we traditionally call like psychology, but yet, and, 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 or like, if you were physically abused or sexually abused or what people don't realize is that these experiences, they can change your nervous system. So they can wire your nervous system to be more hypervigilant to threat. And as a result, what would typically cause one person to feel not that big of a deal. Okay. So that thing at work, not that big of a deal. Another person be like completely overreact and be like, oh my God, what the hell? And that, that person, typically people who are overreacting are people who actually have experienced trauma in their past, or, you know, maybe they've adverse childhood experiences, or they have something unresolved in their history with their parents. And there's this, this programming that gets activated from negative experiences, specifically what I would call social injury. And sometimes social injury is big and it's like a serious trauma. Like you were physically abused or your mother was abused by an alcoholic husband, or you saw some really bad stuff as a kid, or you were just neglected or your parents had mental health dysfunction, but that imprints on you that the world isn't safe and that you're not safe. And if you don't feel safe in the world, then you grow up thinking I've got to be so vigilant to whatever, whatever's around me, because I don't know if something dangerous is coming. And that kind of person who's, I mean, if you really talk to people with, with struggle from obesity, first thing I like to talk to them is like, tell me about your trauma. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your relationship with your parents. And you really got to ask people like what's underneath this. Same thing goes with people who are anorexic, like with other eating disorders, like almost inevitably people with eating disorders, there was something under the surface with their family or their upbringing that didn't get fully resolved. And the way I kind of describe this is like, you know, there's this, this is Dan Siegel's work, but when you have traumatic events in life, these are formed in implicit, it forms an implicit memory. And that implicit memory is kind of like in the present moment. This is where PTSD shows up, right? From really traumatic things. If something was experienced under significant levels of stress hormones, then the nervous system will actually sense that that is still present in the reality of your life. And so and anything that comes up that reminds you of that experience will be felt as though it's in the present moment right now. And then when people do work on their trauma and you actually integrate your trauma, integration is literally the process of taking those, those reactive implicit memories that are still being experienced as present moment fear and saying that goes into explicit memory that goes into long-term memory. But one of the problems of stress and acute stress is that it can impair this memory transmission from implicit to explicit memory. So it doesn't get put into long-term memory. So you're constantly reliving the same experience over and over again with everyone that you experience, like anyone that triggers you or anyone that reminds you of that parent that hurt you in that way is you're reliving that again in your relationships and you're reliving that again in your, in your life. And so this is a thing that like, I, I started discovering this when I started working in the field of psychedelic medicine. And I was really trying to ask myself, well, what is integration? What does that mean? And it's like, I had to study so many different psychologists to finally, finally come up with the actual answer that felt scientific to me. And it was like, oh, so a lot of people are struggling from mental health issues, but we were, but when, when people go get talk therapy, oftentimes you're just reliving those experiences all over again. And it's not actually moving you. It's like, I would just feel like it's consolidating those memories further where they were placed. But what, what we need to do and what the hope is from like modern psychiatry is that there's new techniques of, of healing trauma. There's new techniques with, with pharmaceuticals and electroceuticals even where we can change the way that our brain perceives threat and we can start to relearn these experiences as though they're no longer unsafe. And I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but I am saying that there's room for recognizing that you can't separate the mental and the physical. Like you just can't, they're not separable. Like your consciousness is in every single cell of your body. Like you can't just say that the consciousness is in the mind. It's everywhere. And it's, it's energy flow, I believe. And so, um, you know, I believe that like mitochondria are conscious and I believe that your cells are conscious. And I believe that that amalgamation of you is this, this whole massive processing system of energy flow throughout your body. And so why would you be able to separate the mind from the body? Like clearly when you have gut dysfunction, it creates inflammation and that affects the brain. But when you have brain dysfunction, 
obviously can affect your physiology. If you're stressed out because of, because of, um, you know, psychosocial issues in your life, then it's going to affect your digestion. So there's this yeah. bi-directional relationship that you cannot, you can't just cut them in half. Like they, they're connected. And that's why I think people who struggle with weight loss resistance often need to really deal with the psychology of their weight and the, and the, and the sort of, even the spiritual path of, well, what am I doing? Like, what, how is this serving me? And how do I actually change who I see myself as in this world so I can let go of that person who I was and become a new person today? Lots of food for thought. And I think people are going to get a ton out of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Malou. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the amazing book, The Spark Factor, Supercharge Your Batteries for Limitless Energy in a Fitter, Stronger, More Resilient Future. It's coming out uh, January 31st, 2023. Where can people learn more about the book and your work? Um, go to my website, www.drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. My Instagram is at drmolly.co. My Twitter and LinkedIn are at Molly Malouf, M-D. And yeah, I'd love to have you guys support the book. We've got a pre-sale campaign going on till January 31st with lots of cool things. I designed a course at Stanford that I've converted into an online course. And so that's um, highly discounted during the pre-sale period. So I'd love for our people to take that as well. Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Send your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.